0: Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have called us as your sons. We thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit who illuminates our hearts and minds, who even this morning, uh, as we are still waking up, gives us the ability to hear these words of a parable and see Jesus. As we have seen throughout this study together, Lord, we know that the parables were a litmus test. They were a way that um, cut through the heart. We pray that you would do that this morning, uh, that as we conclude this series, that you would use this parable to show us not only the places where we need to be warned, but also the great promise that we have in the grace of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, there are a few things that I love more in this life than food. You could call me a foodie. I love to eat food. I love to make food. I love the way that food brings joy to people. And you might not be a foodie this morning, but I challenge you to sit at a very good meal and not see the smile that's undoubtedly going to come on your face or the faces around you. And if you don't believe me, I'm sorry to do this to us this morning. I know most of us probably haven't had breakfast yet and we don't have donuts. That is a problem, but I'm going to make us a little hungry. I love a good steak. There's lots of debates about what the best cut of steak is. I would argue that the best cut of steak is a New York strip, and I have my reasons. But a New York strip that's really thick, a really thick, really well cut New York strip. And I've learned over the last year the best way, I think, how to make a New York strip. And I do it on a big green egg. Anyone have one of those? I slow roast it at about 225 degrees over hardwood charcoal and some oak. So it's basically like you're smoking a steak. And it takes about 45 minutes to get it up to about a rare temperature, about 110 degrees. And then I take it off, and I bring the grill up to about 900 degrees, and I do what's called the reverse sear. That You actually sear the steak, not at the beginning, but at the end, because if you sear it at the end, you know what you can do? The steak doesn't have to rest. Something about the way that you know, steak is a muscle, that because of the way that you are bringing that kind of heat at the end, you can eat it immediately. And as you cut into that steak, medium rare have any medium rare out there, yeah, good. You're doing it right. There's just nothing better than that. I love the way a good steak brings joy to people's faces. I love the way that it helps human beings gather together that around a good meal, people will gather together and feast. And so I I, I think we should think about that as human beings and ask the question, why? Why would God do that? Why would God hardwire us in such a way that food would not just bring sustenance and energy and strength to our bodies, but it would also bring joy? Now, now those on the scientific side of things might say, well, that's part of um, evolution, right? That, That we as animals need to enjoy something in order to feed ourselves, but I, I would submit that I think our bodies and the way that they give out after not eating after a while would probably do the trick. It's the same way that why does sunset bring beauty? What, what virtue does that have other than to point us to something deeper? And I think food does that. You see that throughout the Bible. The image of a feast A feast, a well-prepared meal, always symbolizes joy. It symbolizes completeness. It symbolizes being um, completely fulfilled and having every one of our desires and needs met. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in this last parable that we're going to look at together, it is a parable about a great banquet. And what you need to know about the context of this parable is it's actually being told at a meal, but it's not a great feast. We're told in Luke chapter 14 that Jesus has been invited to a Sabbath lunch. Okay, so this is the Sabbath. It's a Saturday for that Jewish culture. And he's been invited to a Sabbath lunch, but he hasn't been invited by his friends. He's been invited by his enemies. The Pharisees have invited Jesus to a Sabbath lunch. And this is what it says. I want you to look with me. This is Luke 14. You have it in your handout. And this is what it says Luke 14, verse 1. It says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. That tells you all you need to know about what this meal was like. This is not a joyous meal. Jesus was being watched and we see that throughout the Gospels that the Pharisees would interact they would engage Jesus in order to put him to the test in order to watch him carefully because by this point in the Gospel of Luke they're starting to wonder they're starting to question right they're starting to plot and so they've come up to Jesus they've invited him to the Sabbath lunch and they're watching him carefully now fast forward to verse 12. Now there's four different scenes that happen around this lunch table. I'm just going to tell you about one of them, it's this parable. Verse 12, we're told that Jesus says to the man who invited him to this Sabbath lunch, this is what he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives or rich neighbors, lest you also invite you in return and be repaid. So, Jesus is saying, Look, a lot of times when we invite people to eat with us to a meal, we're inviting people we want to be around, right? Uh, people we want to get to know. People that we expect eventually might um, repay us in kind, not just from like a meal, but with friendship. Jesus, says, don't invite those kind of people. No, instead, verse 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Do you think about the last meal that you hosted at your home? Who did you invite? Jesus is saying, don't invite these people who have, um, who are on the upper echelon of society, right? Who, Who others would look well upon you for just being around them. No, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame. And then one of those who is at this meal, verse 15, says this, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And it's in response to that statement, blessed, happy, joyful, is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God that Jesus tells a parable. Now, as we look at this parable, I want to look at it in three ways, and the first is this. I want you to know that there will be a feast. For all those who are in Christ, who hear his gracious invitation, there will be a feast. I want you to look with me, verse 16. Here's the parable. But Jesus said to him, so he's saying to the man who says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who'd been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, what you need to know is that in the ancient Near East, for a great banquet, a big feast, there would be two invitations. You can kind of think about it like this. Those of you who have kids who have already been married, you likely sent out a save the date and then the invitation. Or at least if you've been to a wedding, you've probably gotten one of those, right? A save the date. And then the invitation. Think of the first invitation in the ancient Near East, like a save the date with high commitment. In our culture, we send a save the date and it says, "Hey, we just want you to know, you know, the date's coming. Just put it on your calendar. Zero commitment." In the ancient Near East, the first invitation was a save the date, but it gave all the details, and then it asked for an RSVP. That initial invitation asked for an RSVP. And they did that because it took a lot of effort in those days to throw a big feast. They needed to know how many people were coming so they would know how much food to make, right? So that first invitation, it would have been a cultural expectation that you would tell the host that you were coming. And that's what's happening in this parable, right? I want you to look again, verse 1. A man once gave a great banquet, invited many. That's the first invitation, the expectation is that everyone we're about to hear from in this parable has already RSVP'd yes, I'm coming. Because the second invitation would only go out to those who said they're coming. Verse 17, now at the time of the banquet, so what would happen is the second invitation would go out when the banquet was ready. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready. That's the second invitation. It goes to those who said they were going to come, and it says the banquet is ready. The feast has been prepared. All has been made ready for you. Come and feast. Now in the Bible, we see the exact same thing. We see the promise of a great feast that is to come. and In the Old Testament, the prophets give a first invitation to the feast. I want you to listen to this, or you can turn if you brought a Bible. This is the prophet Isaiah, verse 25. This is the feast that Isaiah foretells. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Isaiah says, there will one day be a feast. It will be a feast unlike any other. It will be filled with rich food, well-aged wine, not just food to feed, but food to be enjoyed, a time to celebrate, a time to be filled with joy. Verse 9, Isaiah continues, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So again, the idea is a feast is coming and this feast symbolizes joy. And you don't know joy like this. Now again, we always talk about the difference between happiness and joy. And there's a huge difference, right? Happiness is, has everything to do with circumstance. Joy has to do with the character of God. You and I have little glimpses of joy in this life, this side of heaven. But the feast that Isaiah is talking about is a joy unlike you and I have ever experienced. The kind of gladness and rejoicing that we will be overwhelmed by the presence of God. And the picture is a great feast. Later in Isaiah, we hear the invitation. This is Isaiah 55. Listen to the invitation to the feast. Isaiah 55, verse 1 Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. So, are you thirsty this morning? Maybe not literally, but spiritually, are you thirsty? Isaiah says, Come. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Doesn't matter if you have nothing. In fact, Specifically, if you have nothing, you're invited. If you are impoverished this morning, again, maybe not literally, but spiritually, come. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is the gracious invitation that the prophet Isaiah gives the people of God to the great feast that is to come, where one day, all things will be made new and we will experience everlasting joy in the presence of God forever. That is what Isaiah foretells. This promise we read in the Bible is fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes again. This is Revelation 19. Revelation 19:6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like a roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Do you hear it? Do you hear the joy, the rejoicing, the gladness? And then it says this, for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine lemon, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. What does that sound like to you? Remember what the man sitting with the Pharisees said to Jesus at the Sabbath lunch, blessed is the one who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Here in the book of Revelation, we hear blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. John tells us when Jesus returns there will be a feast. A time of incredible joy. Overwhelming with gladness and rejoicing because Jesus will make all things new. No more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, no more sin. But all of the bad things and the broken things that sin has brought into this world will be undone and everything will be made right again. That is the marriage feast of the Lamb. One day there will be a feast. But the second thing I want you to know, and we see it in this parable, is that though many are invited to the feast, many will make excuses not to come. I want you to look with me, verse 18. So again, these two invitations have gone out. The first invitation required an RSVP, the second to those who said they would come. In verse 18, Jesus says, but they all alike began to make excuses. These ones who originally said they would come, they all begin to make excuses. And What I want you to notice what Jesus says in the parable is that all of these excuses are alike. Now we're about to look at these three excuses. And what I want you to see is that there's some similarities between two of them. The third is a little different. And and I don't want, like many of the parables, I don't want you to over-allegorize these three. But I want you to see that the point is, is that these are very thin, very weak excuses. And we'll see that in just a second. And that fundamentally, they have one thing in common. Okay? And we'll see that together. So they all begin to make excuses. The first excuse says this. The first said to the man, the servant, invited them so the feast is ready. The first said, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Now, I don't know how many of you are in the real estate business. I want you to imagine buying a large piece of real estate sight unseen. Is that a good idea? <laughs> no. I'm not in real estate, and I know that. I'm just a pastor, right? That's what that, so the excuse is, look, I bought a huge piece of real estate, right? I bought a field. I haven't even seen it yet. So that's reckless. That's a terrible excuse. You might even question, especially if you heard someone say that to you. Imagine you're throwing a feast, and someone says, yeah, I was going to come, but, you know, I bought a huge house. I haven't seen it yet. You really need to check it out. Would you kind of question that, right? Be like, really? Okay, let, now let's suppose it's actually true. So let's suppose this man actually did buy the field. He owns it now. Do you think it's going to be there the next day? Do you think he has plenty of time? Look, he signed the, the dotted line. He's got time. He, he could go look at the field the next day or the day after that. Or a month from now, it's still going to be there. He owns it. Why does he have to see it now? Right? It's a pretty thin excuse. It's weak. The second excuse is a lot like it. Verse 19. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Now, in those days, just one oxen was a huge investment. And really, one oxen was kind of all you needed unless you had a huge operation right? And if you were buying five oxen at one time, then you were incredibly wealthy. And again, anyone in the ancient Near East who would have heard this would have immediately said, wait a minute, that just doesn't add up. It would be like this. You again, you invite someone to your home. They told you they were going to come. And when it's time for them to actually come over, they call you at the last minute. And they say, hey, listen, I bought five cars. Just did. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> You know, I just bought five cars and you know what? I haven't even seen them yet. Bought five cars, haven't even seen them yet. I really need to go check them out. So again, that sounds ridiculous. You would hear that excuse and you would think, wait a minute. Why don't you just be honest with me? (laughs) Like if you don't want to be around me, if you don't want to come to my, my feast then fine, but don't make up some lousy excuse like that. Because again, Let's say he's actually telling the truth. Let's say he actually bought five oxen. He owns them now. He can go check them out the next day. It's a thin excuse. And anyone who would have been hearing this parable would have immediately said, this is kind of a ridiculous story, Jesus. Like, who would actually do that? Now, the third, though, seems a little bit maybe less ridiculous. And it strikes a little bit closer to the heart. The third excuse, verse 20... And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, there's lots of different theories on what this looks like as you read commentators and anything from, I'm being recorded here, um, this guy just wants to have fun with his wife, if you know what I mean, to, look, this was a common practice in the ancient Near East. If you're going to get married, there's kind of an expectation. You're going to kind of spend that first year together, right? In uh, our culture today, we talk about those, those first years together, right? The honeymoon period of a marriage. And you hear that and you say, no, that, that kind of makes sense. Like, you know, maybe this guy committed to the feast before he got married. Now he is. And so look, his life has changed. But Jesus is putting this up as an example and says, even that is an excuse This man who says, I would rather spend time with my wife than come to the feast. The point is, is that every single one of us gives a lot of excuses every single day for why we would not follow Jesus to the feast. And whether you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning or not, odds are you make excuses. For those of you, if you do not know Jesus, You've stumbled onto this study. What excuses are you making not to place your hope, your faith, and trust in him? If you do know Jesus and you have committed your life to following him, then what excuses are you making that keep you from fully giving your life to him? Because after this parable, immediately after, Jesus put it this way. This is Luke fourteen beginning in verse 26. Again, you can turn there or you can just listen. This is immediately after this parable. This is what Jesus says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And you hear those words and they sound harsh because they are. Many will try to explain the word hate away here. I don't think you can. But what I do want you to know this morning is when Jesus says that unless you hate your own father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters and even your own life, he's not trying to encourage us to devalue the relationships around us. That's not the point. <laughs> He's not saying, hey, you need to um, hate the people around you and then you can be my disciple. No, the point is that the most important person in your life, the most important relationship, the most important thing in your life must be Jesus Christ to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness before all other things. You must love him first and foremost so much That in comparison, it would be like hating all the people in your life that you love. He ends that statement by saying, even your own life. And this is what I want you to see about the three excuses. The thing they have in common is this. I prefer my life over the feast to come. That's it. That's what these excuses are. That fundamentally, each and every one of them, and every excuse that you and I make that would prevent us from fully giving our lives to Jesus. Every excuse that we make says, I prefer my life and the way that it is over the feast to come. And Jesus says, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you heard him say that, you would have immediately thought of the last person you saw crucified. You see, because Jesus wasn't the only one crucified. The Romans crucified many. They did it as a spectacle to make a point. And so as you heard Jesus say this, you probably thought of the last person that you saw carrying a cross on their back, going to be murdered by the Romans, to executed. Jesus says, unless you take up your own cross, unless you lay your life down, unless you put your life aside, For the sake of the feast, you cannot be my disciples. So, the third and final thing before you go to your tables if those are the stakes, if we tend to make excuses, if deep down we don't really want to take up our cross and follow Jesus, then who will actually come to the feast? Who will actually hear the invitation and come? Third and final thing I want you to know is that only the desperate, only the broken, only the needy will come to the feast. This is what Jesus says, verse 21. Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. So this is a new second invitation. A new second invitation has gone out, and instead it's going to the cripple, to the poor, to the lame, to the needy. When Jesus says that he went out to the streets and lanes of the city, right, it's going out to the, most, the roughest parts of town, right? The places that you wouldn't want to be caught, you know, after dark. Jesus said, go to, go to those places. Go to the hardest places and get the poor, the needy, and the lame. What I want you to begin to see is that in the parable, I believe that the master, the host, is God the Father who has set up a feast. And the servant is God the Son. It's Jesus. God the Father sending Jesus to go after the poor, the cripple, and the lame. But notice what verse 22 says. Jesus says that the servant comes back to the master and says, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. What I'm beginning to see is that though this parable is obviously a warning to us, it's also a promise about the overwhelming grace of God. That even after this invitation has gone out to the poor, the cripple, and the lame, there's still room. There's still grace available for the needy. And so another invitation goes out. Verse 23, the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Again, here I think the idea is now go even further out. Not just the poor, the cripple on the lane, but get on the highway. Travel a great distance. Go out to the hedges. In those days, in the ancient Near East, the Jewish community didn't have hedges around their fields. That was a Gentile thing. So I think what's happening here is, you see, now it's not just the poor, the cripple, and the lame, but go out to the farthest ends of the earth. Go out beyond Israel, beyond the chosen people of God, and go to the Gentiles. Go to the nations. Go to the ones who've never even heard of Yahweh, right? Go to the farthest ends and invite them, and tell them to come, that my house may be filled. In other words, the original hearers of the invitation made excuses So the master of the house sent his servant to go to the poor, to go to the needy, to go to the desperate. And those who are poor and needy and desperate don't need to hear the invitation twice. But they cannot wait to go to the feast. They will leave everything behind in order to go to the feast. God sent a first invitation through the prophet Isaiah and then God sent a second invitation through his son author of Hebrews put it this way long ago at many times and many ways God spoke to our fathers and by the prophets but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son who he appointed heir of all things through whom also he created the world. In these last days, God sent his son, his servant, to send a second invitation. And this invitation has gone out to all who are weary, all who are poor, all who are desperate, and all who need a savior. I want you to hear these invitations of Jesus in the gospels. Jesus invites the weary in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus invites the thirsty in the gospel of John. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What I want you to hear this morning, brothers, is Jesus invites the sinner. That means the feast is for you and it's for me. This parable is not just a warning, but it's a promise, a promise about the overwhelming and overflowing grace of God for us. Jesus invites the sinner. This is the gospel of Luke chapter five. Jesus said, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. John chapter 6, Jesus said, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This morning, brothers, as we conclude this series on the parables, I want you to search your heart. I want you to begin to really wrestle with this. Do you hear the gracious invitation of the servant? God sent his servant, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you, to rise again for you so that all who are desperate, all who are weary, all who are thirsty, all who are needy, all who are broken, and all who sin would find salvation in him and him alone and would come to his feast. Hear these words of the servant. Luke 14, verse 17. Again, Jesus put it this way. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who'd been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the parables. We thank you, Jesus, for telling them. And more than that, we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you give us now ears to understand them. Jesus, you said, he who has ears, let him hear. May we hear your voice this morning and through this parable, may we hear your gracious invitation to us as sinners in need of a savior that you have made the feast ready for us. And so Lord, help us to take up our cross. Help us to stop making excuses, but help us to follow you, to follow after you, to hear this gracious invitation to us so that we might dine with you the great feast that is to come. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.